name is Chuck Marzon. I'm one of your elders here at Christ Community. We're going to be reading from God's Word this morning, two passages, the first of which you'll find on page 849 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's a passage from Mark 12. If you would, pre please uh, stand for the reading of God's Word. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under, my, under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great thong, throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and in the, in the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who came who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. And then again from page 509, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, <clears throat> filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. God's word. If you would have a seat and reflect on his, his word. The story is told about two sailors from Australia who one time came to London uh, looking for a good time. So they decided to visit one of the famous bars in London. They both ended up drinking too much. And several hours later, as the bar closed down, they stumbled out of the front door only to be surrounded by a, a dense London fog that had descended on the city while they were in the bar. And as they staggered about, they could only see a few feet in front of them, and they quickly became disoriented. They had no clue as to how to find their way back. 
And then they noticed this large shadow coming towards them, a shadow of a man coming closer and closer. And they had no idea it was one of the highest ranking British naval officers coming towards them in the fog. He stood before them in full dress uniform. He had a lot of important looking medals on his chest. He stared down at the sailors. Two sailors looked at him and said, Hey, bloke, can you tell us where we are? And the British officer angrily replied, Do you men know who I am? Then one of the Australian sailors looked at the other and said, We're really in a mess now. We don't know where we are, and he doesn't know who he is. (laughs) You get caught in a fog, you get caught in confusion. You don't know where you are. You don't know who you are, who, who, who is what. And really this kind of fog of confusion has fallen on the Temple Mount in Mark 11 and 12. We, we've come to the last few days of Jesus' life on this earth. It's a few days before his crucifixion. He's, he's at the Temple Mount. And all of this section in 11 and 12, they, they are all conversations happening in the Temple Mount. The Temple Mount is the, the highest place in Jerusalem. It's uh, part of a mountaintop that got flattened and then walled off. And so the whole area, if you can imagine, is 35 acres. It's a large area. And there are a number of different things happening there that people would wander around, have conversations. And Jesus is in a series of of conversations, and he he withstands four waves of questioning. People know who Jesus is now. He's been around for three years. He's been to the temple many times. And as he comes to the Temple Mount, they have a series of questions. And I just want you to follow along with me as I point them out to you. Mark chapter 11, verse 27. And they came to Jerusalem, and he was walking in the temple, and the chief priest and the scribes and the elders, these are the, 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 the trinity of, of the religious elite, They come to them and they say, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? See, they're they're confused. They're confused as who they are. They're confused about who Jesus is. Mark 12, verse 13. And they sent him some of the Pharisees. So this same group of people said, okay, Pharisees, you're the next wave. And you take some of the Herodians, two different groups, to trap Jesus in his talk. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And then the Sadducees, see, it's a, another wave crashes on the shore of conversation with Jesus. And the Sadducees came to Jesus who say that there is no rec- resurrection. And then they ask him a question. Then verse 28 in chapter 12. And one of the scribes came up, heard them disputing with one another, And seeing that Jesus had answered them well, he asked Jesus this question, which commandment is the most important of all? So you see, this is wave after wave of people and questions, really sort of a skeptical kind of questioning happening here, trying to put Jesus in his place, which for the religious elite, it's lower than than them. And after Jesus finishes, you notice in verse 34... It says, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
It's like the interrogation is over. He's, he's, asked all, he's answered every question. And as he turns to leave, I imagine he, he scratches his head. He maybe pulls on his beard. He says, hey, you know what? I have a question for you. You, you smart people, you religious elite, you seem to know all the answers and you're trying to put me in some kind of box. How about I ask you all a question? And that's where we land in verse 35. Jesus is, is asking them a question. And in his question and in, his, in this reply here that Chuck read for us, we're going to find out two things. First, Jesus is the true king. They're looking for a king and he's saying, hey, I'm the true king. And then secondly, Jesus wants to point out specifically to his disciples. Now think about this. These are the disciples who are going to lead the charge of the early church. And he wants to make sure these guys have the character of somebody who's going to live inside the kingdom. He's going to step out and say, hey, I'm the king. I'm the true king. And then he gets his disciples and say, guys, I'm just about ready to leave. And it's going to be on you. And I want you to know the kinds of people I'm looking for to take my worldwide kingdom, the church, all across the globe. Jesus is the king. Jesus is looking for certain kinds of people to live in his kingdom. Uh, Verse 35 and 37 is kind of a warm-up question. This is a, a softball question. Jesus is saying to the scribes, you know, how can the, the Christ, the Messiah, uh, how can he be the son of David? Now, everybody knows this, especially in the temple area. Everything in the Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus as the son of David, somehow in the line of David. And it begins in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 11. The prophet tells David, who is the king, he says this, The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself is going to establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I'm going to raise up an offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom and his throne forever. That's a critical passage in the Old Testament. It's a turning point. It's a picture of this person that's going to come. And then Isaiah picks up on it in a very familiar verse, especially at this season. For to us, a child is born, a son is given. And the government, the responsibility of running the world is going to be on his shoulders. And he's going to be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And he will reign where? On David's throne. See, everybody knows this person, this person that's the Messiah, the Christ, he's going to come from David's Lineage. It's a softball question. Jesus knows the scribes could easily answer it. So he follows it up without giving them a chance to answer with really his real question. And his real question comes out of Psalm 110. Now, all these people would have known this. This was a psalm written by David. It's called a royal psalm. It means there's a, a royalty coming after David that's going to, to, to have power over the whole world. And he says, hey, let's remember this opening line. Let's remember what David said. The Lord said, the Lord, Yahweh, God, said to my Lord, this person who's come from me, who I'm now calling the Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. 
Now, David calls, his, calls the person coming from him Lord. How is he also his son? You, you see, you feel the question? David's saying, this person coming from me, he's called the Lord. But yet he's, he's my son. So how is that? They, see, see the question there Jesus is asking? It's a question they don't have an answer for. The softball question is, we know he's going to be the son of David, but the thing they can't see is he's also going to be the son of God. This is the thing that Jesus is trying to help them see. This is exactly what the New Testament launches with, Matthew 1.1. Listen to how the very first line of the Gospels, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's the first line. So here's a genealogy. He's coming from David. This is this person. But John, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has what? Seen the Father. I and the Father are one. You see, see what Matthew is saying? Hey, from, from ground level, we've got the son of David. But from a divine level, we've got the son of God. And the, these, these lines are crashing together in the person of Jesus. And this is what he's trying to help this audience see that they can't see. Jesus is trying to help the questioners see something that they weren't expecting. The, the, the expectations for the Messiah were way too low. They, they had imagined just a mere man, something like a great king, somebody who's going to overturn the, the Roman government, somebody who's going to reestablish Israel as a prominent nation. But the truth is Christ was more than just that. He's a divine man, and he's coming from God. He's not primarily occupied and doesn't seem to give much attention to the overthrow of the Roman government. His interest is to overthrow the government in your heart. Everybody's got a ruler of their heart. And Jesus is saying, hey, the ruler currently here on earth, I mean, they're important and all that, but the most important thing is who rules your heart. And, and a, a mere man can't come in and do that. A divine man can come in and overthrow the ruler of your heart. This whole conversation reminds me of a pretty well-known passage uh, from a book from C.S. Lewis. Most of you are probably familiar with the passage. C.S. Lewis was an English professor at Oxford and a pretty well-known atheist at his time. And over the course of several years, he became a Christian, and then he became one of the famous Christian apologists in the 1900s. And he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia and a number of other books. Probably his most well-known book is called Mere Christianity, which is his way of defending Christianity. And this is what he says about Jesus. Then the real shock comes. This is the real shock that these people that are on the Temple Mount are feeling. Among the Jews, there was su- suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. He claims to forgive sins. He says as, as he, as, that he's always existed. The things this man were, said were quite simply the most shocking things ever uttered by human lips. What I'm trying to prevent anyone from saying is the really foolish thing I often hear people say about Jesus. 
which is I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I can't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that's the one thing we must not say. You must not say Jesus is some great person, but he's not also God. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic. He'd be on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Or else he would be the devil from hell. You must make your choice. This man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You see what he's saying? Saying the same thing Jesus is saying at the temple. Guys, I'm, I'm different than what you think. The real shock is coming. I'm, I'm not just the son of David. I'm the, I'm the son of God. I've got these two identities crashing together in this one person. And, you know, you and I are familiar with the story that you go, okay, yeah, yeah. But imagine this is the very first time you're trying to absorb this information. question for us is, who do you say Jesus is? Jesus in this passage stands here in this area. Who do you think he is? I mean, you have a lot of questions to Jesus, do you not? You say this, well, when I get to heaven, the first question I'm going to ask, well, he has a question for you today. Who do you say that he is? Now, now, don't answer too quickly. And the reason I don't want you to answer too quickly is because in the next passage, he's going to say, okay, everybody who said, I'm for Jesus, I think he's the Christ, then there's a way to live if you want to live in the kingdom. See, they go together. So you, you don't want to answer too quickly and just say, well, I, I believe, but I'm not willing to, to live in a certain way. He wants the people at the Temple Mountain. He wants his disciples. He wants the people at Christ Community Church this morning to, to pause and to think, if I say yes to Jesus, I must be saying yes to the way he wants me to live in his kingdom. Well, how does he want us to live in his kingdom? He couldn't give us any better picture than the picture of the scribes and the widow, which is our next point. If you're saying yes to Jesus, well, how do you live in his, if we say he's the king, how do we live in the the king's kingdom? Such a great picture here, uh, a a difference between the scribes and the widow. The the kinds of people Jesus is looking for, first of all, he points out the scribes. Now, he's got his disciples with him and he's saying, guys, remember, uh, we're getting towards the end here. I want you to see something very clearly. Look at the scribes. These are the kinds of people who live on an earthly kingdom. And notice the word he uses, beware. Back up. Don't don't rush towards this. Be, Be very careful about their kind of living. And he says, these are the kinds of people that are preoccupied by shaping their own self image. Can you imagine living in a culture preoccupied by shaping its own image? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it's, it was happening 2,000 years ago. And he says, look at these people. This, this little passage would apply to a middle school girl or a middle-aged business person. 
Because all of these things are pervasive in both of those spheres and all the ones in between. First of all, here's what you want to be aware of. He just points out five things. Robes. Fashion. Just, just be aware of what you're wearing, that you're not wearing it, so everybody gets to look at you. So when you step into your Christmas party and you have the ugliest Christmas sweater on, oh, look at him. Just, just beware of how you're dressing so that you're not really dressing so everybody looks at you. That's how the scribes do. They walk into the Temple Mount, 35 acres. They've got to dress in a way that everybody goes, hey, there goes somebody important. There goes somebody powerful. Secondly, greetings. They greet one another, and the idea here is title. Oh, very reverend pastor, Dr. Phillips. You know, just all these titles you got to tack on to your name so everybody around knows, whoa, this guy, he's got some titles. Just beware of, of saying stuff about yourself to make yourself just a little bit higher than everybody else. Using some kind of title, using something to say, hey, I'm a little more important than you. Best seats, places of honor. This is uh, the sin of, of comparison. Who's got the best seat? Who's got the place of honor? Who, who's living the best life right now? Who's the most successful? Who's the wisest? Who's the wealthiest? Who has the biggest platform? Who has the biggest following? Who has the most number of likes? You see that? I, my, my whole identity is wrapped around that everybody notices me because I'm in a place of honor. Hey, wow, what you said, how many people responded, your platform, the number of people you're reaching, all that becomes churned up inside of a soul that gets centered on itself. Beware. Notice number four, lengthy prayers. Don't be holier than thou. Don't you use your Christianity as a platform to promote yourself. This has got to be the worst of the, of the four that I've mentioned so far. You're somehow using your Christian platform to promote something that's not really true about yourself. And you, you see this all the time, especially on television. You think, oh, you shouldn't be saying that. You're just using it to, to bolster yourself. You're not, you're not bringing glory to God. You're importing it to, to, to glorify yourself. One last thing, verse 44, they give out of their abundance. Meaning that the person who lives in the worldly system, their, their accounting system, their operating system for their personal accounting is they start with themselves first. I get $1,000 in, I assess all the needs that I have. Why? Because I'm the most important thing. And after I assess all my needs, I got housing needs, I got entertainment needs, I got transportation needs, I got food needs, I got health needs. And if there's any money left over from that $1,000, that's called abundance. I don't have to have that in order to live. And so what's left over, I can possibly give it away. Jesus is saying, be, beware. Beware of that happening in your own heart and soul. Beware of people that operate in that way. 
Over Thanksgiving, I was tuned into some show that talked about an old Paul Harvey story, if you know his name. Old radio commentator who would tell great stories. He tells a story of a woman who calls the telephone helpline for butterball turkey. You know that this exists. You know, you're having trouble with your turkey. You call the 800, you know, butterball line. Here's what they said, and this is a true story. They asked the operator whether a turkey in her freezer, which had been there for 23 years, was safe to eat. Now, do you need to call about that? I mean, real, seriously, you need to call, I mean, anything in your refrigerator for 20, ice. I wouldn't eat ice that's been in my refrigerator for 23 years. Here's what the Butterball representative said. Well, it'd be okay if the freezer had maintained a below zero temperature throughout the whole 23 years, but it probably wouldn't taste very good. The woman responded, oh, that's what we thought. We thought we would donate the turkey to the, ch- to the church. You, f- you feel that? It, it's, it's okay because it's not out of, it's out of just things I don't need. This isn't really about my life. I'm giving stuff that just is sort of laying around and I'm thinking I'm doing something wonderful. Beware, Jesus says. And he walks with his disciples over to the place where people give money. They have the offering baskets. And they're not baskets, they're like brass trumpets. And when you dropped your coins in, there's no dollars back then. Imagine the sound of the brass trumpet. You ever been in a Grocery store and the coin star, you know, machines over here. And somebody drops in a lot of change. You you go, wow, how do you get that much change? It just has that sound. The same sound is happening in the temple. Some people are coming and dropping a bunch of change. And, of course, this brass trumpet's receiving them. It's making all this noise. And Jesus is looking at everyone who gives. that make you nervous? He seems to know the exact amount of every gift and if it comes from abundance or not. Because he sees this woman, he goes, disciples over here, huddle up. Okay, guys, here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for this person right here. And he puts his hand on their head and turns their head And you know what they're thinking. Some big important person, Jesus is pointing this person out. I can't wait to find out who he's really excited about. His his eyes are dancing. He can't wait for them to see. And who is it? A poor widow woman. In in that society and maybe this, this one, this is a person who never gets noticed in this world. Nobody knows that this person exists. And her two little pennies don't make enough noise to register any attention. And he says, the people in my kingdom, they're going to look like that. See, do you think Jesus is the Christ? I mean, seriously. You've sat through a lot of sermons before. You've been to Christmas Eve services before. You've sang Silent Night before. Do you really think he's the Christ? 
that in him, divinity and humanity meet together in a way to save your soul for eternity. Do you really believe it? Don't answer too quickly. He doesn't want you or me to import the ways of the world inside of our church and say, well, I'm still interested in people thinking I have nice clothes on and have a great title and notice that I'm comparatively better than other people and that I give money. When he's saying, those people don't fit in my kingdom. Those people have a kingdom that they're still living for themselves. And he looks at this woman and says, guys, follow her of all people in the world. Is he the king? Are you ready to live in his kingdom? If you were a gambler, you'd say this woman was all in. You know what that is? You're, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't gamble a lot. This is probably good that you don't. <laughs> but if you happen to play cards, you know, you got some chips or something. And at some point, somebody pushes the, all their chips to the center. I'm all in. Jesus looks at his friends. I I need people who are all in. All in like this widow. Yesterday I talked to, actually it's two days ago, I talked to Benny Matthews. He's the CEO of Alpha Ministries, which is a ministry we support here that is a big church planning network in India. And it was started by his dad, whose name is Cherian Matthews. And Cherian grew up in the south part of India and felt a call on God's life to move to the northern part, the northern states of India, because in the southern part, there was some kind of Christian influence down there, but there was really virtually no Christian influence in the northern part of India. Millions. I mean, think of India, over a billion people. There's millions of people, throngs of people, never even heard about Christ So he takes his wife and his newborn baby, Benny Matthews. And I think it was in 1969, it takes a three-day train trip, has no money when he arrives in this town, Baroda. Knows no one and starts a ministry. And he died last month. And so I called Benny to talk to him and he said three things that were important that I wanted to share with you. One, Paul... When, when my dad came here, he knew nobody, not one person. And the only reason we got the house that we were able to live in is because the owner thought it was haunted and nobody would want it. So she gave it to us. When he died, we had to have a, an official police escort. There were so many people following the line of his funeral. And when we got there, there were hundreds of people already at the gravesite. Think about that. Secondly, this year for Alpha, 14,000 decisions for Christ. One man, one man who, who pushed all of his chips in and says, I'm all in. And this was maybe the most surprising part of it. I don't know why this was the most surprising part for me. But he says, Paul, after the funeral was over, me and my brothers went back and, and took care of his belongings. 
All of his belongings. You know how long it takes us to take care of all of them? Less than an hour. Why? He was all in. Wonder if I'm all in. Wonder if you're all in. Let's pray together. Lord, you're all in. That's the good news. You're all in. You came down. You rescued us, people who are centered around ourselves. And you're all in for us. And those who trust in you, you're going to bring them home. But you're asking on the ride home, I need you to walk in this way. And of course, all of us here, most of us here know this little story about the widow's might. But are we all in? As we prepare for communion, Lord, would you, would you speak to our hearts? As those who've trusted in you come forward, would you just whisper to them, are you all in? On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the cup and the bread and he said, this is my blood, this is my body, it's given for you. I'm all in and I want you to take and eat and I want you to remember to be all in for me. Lord, take these elements as common as they are and use them for your eternal purposes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the ushers will come down and usher you by aisle and you come.